I'm reading uh, two passages, uh, Exodus 33 um, from verse 12 to the end there, and then uh, 34 up until uh, verse 9. And in this uh, passage, you'll see the name of the Lord um, in capital letters, four capital letters. That is um, when our translation translates the covenant name Yahweh um, into our English. So Ross has asked me to substitute Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, um, where our English version says the Lord with capital letters. <clears throat> so Moses said to Yahweh, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. You, you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Yahweh replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and you and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see, me, see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, when my glory pass by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Yahweh said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may grace in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning. As Yahweh had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and giving wickedness and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents 
to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us your, and take us as your inheritance. So far.
Well, fancy being in the pulpits two Sundays in a row. I don't think that will ever happen again, will it, Ron? Let's see. I'd like to read to you also another passage of Scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, um, you might like to follow it. If you, if you haven't got your Bibles here, well, you'll just have to listen, won't you? With both ears and the heart and the mind. See if you can see the connection between Exodus 33 and John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Familiar words to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So far. I'll be preaching through James when I'm standing up here while during the vacancy. I'm not sure how, we'll, how, long, how far we'll get, but there's a couple of good, couple of good years in uh, James, so <laughs> there you are, Ron. A little bit more scripture because we're going from James. Refreshing your memories. Listen to James's opening words, his opening salvos. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Well, when we hear James's opening verses, we 21st century Christians are faced with the greatest of challenges, aren't we? Living out the trials of life with not just a little bit of joy, 
but with all joy or pure joy. And we know immediately that we miss the mark. We just don't have such perfect faith to have such perfect joy when the trials of our lives swamp us. We've prayed for people this morning, Tamba has, who've got trials. We should join them as brothers and sisters during the week and support them in their trials. And we all have these trials, don't we? Circumstances and people that cause us stress and anxiety, worry, fears, even depression. So what are your anxieties and fears? They would come pretty quickly to your mind, surely. Yes, you are coping, praise God. Some you are even working through. But with what degree of joy? Now James knew his own heart, as well as those of his congregations. He knew very well that he and they and we need God's wisdom. Just ask God, he says, and you'll get all you need. But ask with genuine faith, because doubters don't stand a chance of receiving anything. So what was this wisdom? What is this spiritual ingredient that enables a believer in Jesus to endure trials of many kinds with pure joy? We search the scriptures and we discover that wisdom is all about knowing God. Knowing God. In fact, the Christian life can be described in many ways, one of which is the Christian life is all about growing in the knowledge of God. Do you often think of that? Growing in the knowledge of God. The growing of the knowledge of God is our wisdom. To know God is to be wise and truly knowledgeable. This is the knowledge of Peter. And James and all biblical writers, they urge believers to grow in, grow in the knowledge. Look at Paul's letters, Peter's letters, James' letter. They're all moving that direction. The amazing thing is that he has given us a big book in which he reveals himself and his acts. And you guessed it, the Bible. The Holy Bible, since he is its author and he is holy. Well, in my reflections on James and the wisdom of which he speaks, I came to the conclusion that it would be worthwhile for us this morning to ponder what God reveals of himself in his word before continuing through James. After all, our Lord directed us to have a strong rock foundation, didn't he? If we want to build a house on it, that will endure. We don't want one with a sandy foundation. And what he meant by that metaphor was not just to hear his words, but to practice them. Practicing. That might be a new idea. Yeah. None of us has a perfect knowledge of God. In fact, our Christian life can be expressed as a journey of letting go of our natural, imperfect assumptions of who God is, replacing with a true biblical knowledge 
of who he insists he is. And it's going to take a lot of sermons, congregation, a lot of Bible study, and even a bit of suffering to know God. As we have seen before, we need the very big and very real God of James to endure the trials of life with serenity and joy. So who is God? Where shall we go? Well, remembering that James's congregations didn't have the New Testament, only the Old Testament, we should look there for James's source of inspiration. And there is no epiphany where God reveals more of himself than in Exodus 33 and 34. And there we witness a day in the life of Moses. A day in the life of Moses. But what a day! A day he never forgot, and one that Israel never forgot in knowing who God is. Yahweh, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, when God called him to deliver his people from Egypt. He has led Israel through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, very special mountain. Yahweh. The name literally means, I am who I am. Or, I shall be what I shall be. And it points to his covenant faithfulness. It's a covenant word relating to his people. And it indicates his trustworthiness in all situations, congregations. A word of integrity, a name of unchangeability towards you. And now it is time for Israel to witness this firsthand. God had long ago promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that their descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the beach and would inherit the land of Canaan from God. That promise is about to be fulfilled. But the people lack faith in Yahweh. He, Yahweh even calls them a stiff-necked people. Would you like to be called a stiff-necked people? God loves a stiff-necked people. He is Yahweh to them. They would prefer to return to the slavery of Egypt rather than face the perils of the wilderness without water and food and then have to conquer the hostile tribal nations that, who live there. <coughs> Moses and Israel had seen the power of Yahweh in the divine plagues he brought upon Pharaoh, which eventually forced Pharaoh to send Israel away, get out of the place laden with gold and silver and all precious things. But then we see the weakness of faith. Moses even is unsure that Yahweh could lead his people through that wilderness into the promised land. Many what-if questions came to his mind, like you and me. 
He needed a fuller knowledge of Yahweh than he already had and had witnessed. And he'd witnessed a lot, hadn't he? And the same situation is provoked by James's opening challenges of faith. Is God great enough to grant me joy in my trials? So Moses did a daring thing, something that you and I would never dare to do. He dared to ask of Yahweh to see him. Show me your glory. For Moses to make such a bold request reveals just how close Moses' fellowship with Yahweh was. In fact, <coughs> Yahweh himself says, I talked to Moses face to face. What an expression of intimacy. And God's response? Permission granted. Wow. I will cause all my, what did he ask for? My glory. I want to see your glory. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. Congregation, next to the incarnation of God's Son, Jesus, this is the high point of God's self-revelation in Scripture. So sit tight in your seat this morning and watch it unfold to your blessing. This is a self-revelation of God, and it formed the foundation for the future history of Israel throughout the Old Testament. It is the focus of daily life, their Psalms, their prophets, and we even sang a song this morning about God's goodness and graciousness. Do you remember it? Well chosen, Chantel. But did you notice the first word of revelation of God? It was not his power. It was not his justice. It was not his wrath. It wasn't even his love or mercy or grace. That's something new for us, isn't it? It was his goodness. The goodness of God. God is a God of goodness, congregation. So if you, when you go from this place this morning, that's one thing you can remember. God is a God of goodness towards you. And Yahweh equates his glory to his goodness. First and foremost, Yahweh wants Moses and Israel and us to know that he is a God full of Goodness. Strange, you might think. And this is where we note that our existing thinking of who God is is not necessarily how he reveals himself to us. We must listen to scripture more carefully. And to listen to scripture means you have to listen to scripture. Read it. Study it, congregation. You want to get closer to God, to know him? That book is there for you to open and make it a well-worn book with the pages falling out. 
We might well have expected a statement of omnipotence, but no, his name is goodness. And that simply means that we need to read the scriptures more often than we do. A retired friend of mine said recently to me that he finds pleasure in reading the Bible through, not once, but twice every year. How do you measure up to that? Well, one could assume that this man knows who God is in a deeper way than one who may read a prepared devotional daily on the one particular verse of Scripture. Congregation, the thrust of Scripture is that God's people read his word so that they might know him. You won't know him by reading the paper or watching TV. How much time do you spend doing that relative to Scripture? Note King David, of whom God had said that he was a man after his own heart. Wow. There's not too many people in Scripture that God gives that reputation to. And he prays, Teach me, O Yahweh, your decrees. Then I will keep them. To the end. If you want to get some to know somebody, you need to spend time with them. So Yahweh wants Moses to spend time with him on Mount Sinai to see his goodness personified, his being, one of thinking and doing good to Israel and all his people. And nor is this a one-off descriptor of God. In his, this revelation, we enter into the very center of who God is. It is his own self-characterization. And it becomes the essence of Israel's creed. <clears throat> it's just not what we expected. His glory and his goodness, and his goodness is his glory. And he immediately adds that this goodness is defined by mercy and compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Compassion can also be uh, translated graciousness or grace. So here we have a revelation to us of the heart of our Creator. It is one of mercy, goodness, compassion, grace. They are precious words because they stand for God. And remain so throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Mercy, compassion, grace, goodness describe Yahweh's relationship with His people, even in their idolatry and their rebellion. There are some amazing passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that give us the heart of God towards his people. Listen to, for example, these words from the book of Hosea. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. 
I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst. This is who God is. We may tremble when we daily fall short of his law of love, but he wants us to know that he will always respond to the sorrowful hearts in mercy, in compassion, in grace. His cup of grace is bottomless. It is always full, brimming over towards you. How do we know this? But do we know this? Do we believe this? It surely assured Moses because with this knowledge of Yahweh, he went forth and led Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. And they were a stiff-necked, stubborn people. Dutchies have nothing compared to those Israelites. Moses endured their rebellion their continued sin, their continued iniquity, even their idolatry, as well as his own sin. Knowing the heart of Yahweh as one of grace, mercy, compassion, and goodness. But this was only the introduction. Yahweh announces to Moses that he will pass by. Moses, who will be able to see with his own eyes a manifestation of Yahweh's glory and goodness. And as he does so, he first announces his great name of faithfulness, Yahweh, Yahweh, repeated for emphasis, no name is greater Israel later considered it so great that they went to the extreme of never saying it at all. Why? Well, that would enable them to avoid any possibility of misusing or taking it in vain. So we don't really know how to pronounce the word today. Then the glory, goodness of Yahweh is declared more fully. He wants to be known as the compassionate and gracious God. An emphatic repetition of the introductory revelation. He does not declare himself to be one who is severe and unforgiving, stern and demanding, or even slow to exercise patience and mercy. He doesn't even mention his sovereign power or holiness here. Rather, he wants Moses and his people to know that he is compassionate and gracious to the extreme. That is, he is gently accommodating himself to our fallen nature, our fallen character. He knows how fallen you and I are. And it doesn't make him blink at all. Not overwhelming us with his character of perfection, eternity, infinity, omnipotence, omniscience. He is all of those things. 
But here he wants us to know that he is a God of goodness towards us. He then wants Moses and his people to know that he is the God who is slow to anger. Literally, here's something of interest for you. The Hebrew word for slow to anger is long of nostrils. Picture an angry bull pouring the ground, heavily breathing, with nostrils flaring. That would be short-nosed. Yahweh is long-nosed. The Hebrew have a nice, neat way of saying things. It takes accumulated provocation to draw out his ire. Have you noticed that God never has to be provoked to mercy? Never has to be provoked to compassion, to grace or love? These attributes, as it were, come naturally to him because that is what he is. But, note this, he has to be provoked to anger. Yes, there are times when the sins of his people bring his patience and compassion to an end and his anger is revealed in discipline and judgment but the assurance is it will end. And this is the exact opposite of you and me, isn't it? We have to be provoked to compassion, but never to anger. That comes naturally. You see, God is not a man. He is the Holy One. And his glory, goodness continues. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. At last, the word love. This is pure covenant language, congregation, reflecting the special commitment that he has made to his chosen people to whom he has bound himself gladly in an unbreakable covenant bond. Marriage is a picture of that. But this covenant relationship between his people and himself is stronger. His faithfulness teaches us that he will never throw his hands up in despair at you or me. Despite the reasons that his covenant people give him. He refuses to entertain the very thought of forsaking those who deserve to be. Is this your view of God? Or are you scared one day he's going to chuck you out and, and be finished with you? It is revealed also that his love and faithfulness abound. Beautiful word there. There's always more. We may err in thinking that our sins have exhausted the love of the Father. But that is what it is. It's an error, a false view of God. And Yahweh's liturgy continues. He maintains love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, sin and rebellion. 
implying that there is no termination dates in my, in, our, in my commitment of abounding love to you. You can't stop my grace guiding your life in all its trials. You can't outrun my mercy. My heart is set forever on you. Is this your God? You may have heard it said that the God of the Old Testament is a thundering, judgmental, relishing deity with a short supply of love and mercy. Different to the New Testament God. Well, such people just haven't read Exodus 33 or 34, have they? And then we come to this last revelation of Yahweh's glory goodness. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Do you find this somewhat contradictory to what he has just revealed of himself? It seems totally out of character, out of place, doesn't it? And yet this is part of Yahweh's self-revelation to encourage Moses and Israel to get up there into Israel. Yet reality does reveal it. The sins of parents very often followed the descendants for generation after generation after generation. Third or fourth generation. There are books of psychology on it. I've read one of them. Quite amazing. On reflection, it is a vital characteristic of Yahweh. Without it, he would appear to be a big softy, lenient God, letting sinners off the hook. Hitler doesn't have to go to hell. He's okay to go to heaven. We'll let him off. Is that the kind of God you have? Don't we often complain about our justice system that makes soft judgments? Been in the news again this week. Yahweh is perfect, and he perfectly balances mercy with justice. His word is full of examples. Listen to James himself, who comments on this same point. Judgment without mercy, says James, will be shown, now hear it, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. End of James. We'll come to that verse later on during the next two years. So congregation, that is who God is. According to his own testimony, not the preachers, not the theologians, but his own very mouth. According to his own heart. Yet this God in many ways remained hidden in Old Testament times. Eventually though, it was time to reveal himself in all his glory, all his glory goodness in the flesh, with a human body in the person of his Son, whom we know as Jesus, our Messiah. Note how John introduces him in his first chapter. 
We have seen his glory. Moses said that too. He could have said it. The glory of the one and only. That sounds like Yahweh to me. Who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think John has just finished reading Exodus 33, 34, before he penned these amazing words. Shades of Moses from Mount Sinai. And then John says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So congregation, in Jesus Christ we see God. We see Yahweh in human form. Better and clearer even than Moses did. Jesus himself added to his own disciples in the upper room hours before his crucifixion. Listen carefully. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me, says Jesus, has seen the Father, has seen Yahweh. It is no wonder then that Paul's greatest desire is, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And then Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that you may know him better. That God simply says to all his redeemed, believing children, Know me. Know my goodness, my mercy and my grace. And then knowing me, you will have all that you need to endure the trials of your faith with joy, even pure joy. Amen. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that the faith that you have given us is a faith in a real God, a true God, one who has revealed himself. You are not a God made up by men, as so many religions are. We praise you and, and thank you for that. We thank you for this revelation that you gave to Moses of old, willingly, when he asked dared to ask you that he saw your glory and we also thank you that you have revealed your glory to us through your son the Lord Jesus Christ full of grace and glory may our knowledge of you ever increase Lord as Paul prayed so that indeed we may be able to walk faster with you more strongly and as we go through this book of James, we pray that you will bless us and help us with that knowledge to walk and through the trials of life that you bring upon us. We bless and commit to you those 
who have trials in our congregation and ask that you will especially draw near to them as a God of goodness. For Jesus' sake, amen.